purpose this morning, don't we? If you would take out your Bibles with me. Let's look together at the book of Romans. I'm sorry, the book of Romans. I'm excited. I've been working on sermons for Romans 8 all week long. Uh, turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 19. The Gospel of John in chapter 19. This morning is our third occasion out of six in which we are celebrating the Lord's Supper together in 2013. Uh, Right now we celebrate the Lord's Supper every two months, and my goal in the time of preaching before we come to the Lord's table on each occasion is to draw our attention to the suffering and the death of our Savior I want us to come to the Lord's table freshly reminded of His great love for us. I want us to be moved to worship and to deep gratitude. I want us to be newly resolved to love our Savior with everything that we are. Our Jesus has deeply loved us. And He is deeply loving us even even now. Back in February, we began a series of three Lord's Supper sermons, meditations, devotions, whatever you want to call them, thinking about the various instruments that were used in the crucifixion of our Lord. Uh, The first instrument we looked at was the crown of thorns. We saw that the crown of thorns was deeply symbolic. Throughout the Old Testament, beginning in the third chapter of Genesis, thorns are used time and again as a vivid picture of the curse of God. So that when the Roman soldiers place a crown of thorns upon Christ's brow, they are unwittingly, they don't know it, but they are symbolizing the gospel truth of what is happening in that moment. That the very curse of God upon man's sin is being placed upon the head of Christ. This had been foreshadowed in Genesis 22. when uh, There was the sacrificial ram with its horns caught in the thorn bushes and it is about to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. And so we saw that the crown of thorns was a picture of the curse of God taken by Christ for our sakes on the cross, if we believe. In April, at that Lord's Supper service, we looked at the cross itself. We looked at the tree. And of all the ways that God could have ordained for His Son to be executed, why did He choose for it to be through crucifixion? Why did He choose for it to be on a tree? And we saw that this too was Deeply symbolic, full of meaning. In the ancient world, a person hung on a tree was one who had suffered the condemnation of the law. This person was a criminal. This person had been convicted by the law. This person had been sentenced to death. And they were hung on a tree as a statement and a warning to others. In the case of Israel, the law was not just the law of their nation. It was the very law of God. And so when Jesus was hung on a tree outside of Jerusalem. It was a statement that Jesus was being punished for violations of the law of God. That Jesus was being punished as a criminal. And of course, 
He was blameless and he was sinless. And so he was being punished for our sins if we believe. Well, this morning we come to our third and final message in this series, looking at these instruments used in the death of our Lord. And this final one, this final message is going to focus on the spear that pierced Christ's side. So look with me at John 19, beginning in verse 31. Beginning in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the leg of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on Him whom they have pierced. Well, friends, we know that nothing happens by accident. That God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Big things, small things, everything is a part of the history and plan of God. Certainly, every aspect of the crucifixion was carefully designed and orchestrated by God. I mean, this is the center point of redemption. This is the moment more than any other in time and space in which God's glory is put on display. It is at the cross that God's justice and His mercy, His righteousness and His grace, His wrath and His love all come together in one moment in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, even if no other event in the history of the world had been carefully designed and orchestrated, certainly this one would have been. And the fact that we know that every event in human history is carefully designed and orchestrated by God only reinforces that nothing that happened on that fateful Friday was an accident. It was ordained of God. And so we're right to ask this question, why did God ordain for His Son to be pierced with a spear and for blood and water to flow? What's the significance of this spear? What's the significance of this event in which the blood and the water flowed? Well, unlike our past two Lord's Supper messages, I could not contain this one into one sermon. So this will be our full day study this morning and tonight. And here's our two-part outline that we're going to use to study these verses. Number one, observations from our text. And that's all we're going to do this morning. We're just going to make some observations from our text. And then this evening, we will look at the reasons that God ordained for blood and water to flow from the side of of Christ. So, number one, observations from our text. Number two, reasons God ordained for blood and water to flow from the side of Christ. So, observations. Number one, the first observation we need to make is that Christ has already died when the events of our passage take place. Where we began reading, 
Christ is already dead. We began reading in verse 31. If you look back at verse 30, you'll see that it was there that Christ uttered those final words. It is finished. And He bowed His head. And He gave up His spirit. The hard work of Jesus in bearing the wrath of God for sinners, it was done. This had been an incredibly difficult task placed on the shoulders of this man. And make no mistake, Jesus was a man, though also also God. He bore this punishment as a man. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He had begun to feel the weight of it. He experienced a deep, agonizing anguish of the soul. Jesus had been arrested and taken to trials in the middle of the night and in the early morning. False witnesses stood and and declared lies about Him before the religious leaders. He was set before the people as a public spectacle. And they chose Barabbas to be freed instead of Him. Jesus was beaten and He was mocked. The crown of thorns was placed on His brow. A rod was placed into His hand. An old purplish garment was placed around Him. And hundreds of soldiers bowed before Him, laughing and laughing, mocking Him, ridiculing Him, taking pleasure at His humiliation. They stripped the Lord Jesus. They tore the skin off of His back. And then they marched Him through town. They made Him carry His own cross though He could hardly walk. Eventually the cross had to be carried by another man and Jesus made it to Calvary only by leaning on others. Weak and weary, His body aching, His wounds festering. They put nails through His hands and His feet and they crucified Him. And even as the soldiers below cast lots for his garments and his own mother looked up at him with tears in her eyes, Jesus endured a kind of suffering in his human soul that was worse than the pain that was convulsing in his body. For he who was nearest and dearest to him, his own heavenly Father, Remember Jesus as a young man. Mary and Joseph are looking for him. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Oh, Mom, Dad, don't you know I'm going about my Father's work? From the youngest of ages, the one that was nearest and dearest to the heart of Jesus Christ was His Heavenly Father. He had such a love for His Heavenly Father. And now, in the midst of all the physical anguish and soul, the one whom He loved most turned and forsook Him and poured upon the human soul of Christ the greatest pain and suffering that has ever been known in the history of our world. The kind of punishment that we deserve as Christians for every sin we ever committed poured out on Christ. God hates lying. God hates murder. He hates hatred. God hates sexual immorality and lust. God hates the dishonoring of parents. God hates pride and greed and the abuse of other people. God hates things that are evil. He hates things that do harm to the well-being of others. He hates all that dishonors His name. And we in this room, 
Every one of us, we are guilty of these things that God hates. And it was our souls that deserved the penalty. It was our souls that deserved to feel this anguish and to be tormented for all eternity. And yet Christ bore it all and He bore it fully. He did not deserve to be punished for one sin, but He bore the great wrath of God deserved by every sinner, millions of them who will ever call out on His name in faith. These sins were placed on Him and the righteousness of God responded with with wrath upon Him. And though Christ suffered as a man, He suffered as the God-man of infinite worth and therefore what would have taken us an eternity in hell to pay, He fully absorbed in these hours on the cross. The punishment was completely meted out upon Him He bore it all. He bore it willingly. And no greater love has ever been seen in the history of the world. And then he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. And he died. And so now Mary's looking up at the cross. And she's being comforted by this disciple, John. And they look and they see that Jesus is now a lifeless corpse hanging upon the tree. His head is bowed. The body is still. No more the heaving upward to try and gasp breath. No. Jesus' body simply is dead upon the tree. Number two. Second observation. Our text tells us that Christ's legs were not broken. Christ's legs were not broken. You see, Christ was crucified on a Friday. It is now just past 3 p.m. on Friday. And for the Jews, the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday and lasts till sundown on Saturday. And This meant there was no time to wait for these crucified men to die. These men needed to die quickly and and to have their bodies removed from the crosses. There's details to be seen to concerning what they're going to do with these bodies. And they need to see to these details quickly because the Sabbath is coming. Not just any Sabbath, but but a high Sabbath. And it's against the laws of ancient Israel to leave these bodies hanging on crosses overnight. And so the religious leaders, they, they go to Pilate and... And they say, look, we, we need you to, to make sure these criminals, we need their legs to be broken. Break their legs. That way they can't push up. That way they can't gasp for air. And, and they will suffocate. They will go ahead and, and die. And that way we can get their bodies down and deal with them before the Sabbath. And so a soldier goes to one of the thieves on one of the sides of Christ. And, and that thief is still alive. And so what does the soldier do? He, he breaks his legs. We're not told how. He broke his legs. But you can imagine the, the painful howl of the first thief as he feels his legs broken by this Roman soldier. And, and then a, a soldier on the other side of Christ goes to that thief and he's alive as well. And, and that soldier breaks his legs. It is very doubtful that these men had experienced anything like what Christ had experienced before they were crucified. Certainly their souls had known nothing of the kind of agony that Christ's soul had known as He hung on the cross and the Father unloaded upon Him the the flood of His wrath against sin. And, And so therefore, when the soldier came to Christ's cross, he found Jesus was already dead. 
there was no reason to break the legs of Christ. And yet, this was absolutely on purpose in the plan of God. This was another sign. John's Gospel was all about signs that Jesus is the Messiah. And this was another sign that Jesus is the one who would come to save. And, and John tells us that. He, he reminds us of this. He quotes Psalm 34.20. It's also found in the book of Exodus. It's also found in the book of Numbers. The sacrificial Lamb of God would be one in which no bone would be broken. And so John is saying in this passage, don't you see? Here is yet another evidence that this one is the Messiah. Here it is. That thief's legs was broken. That thief's legs were broken. But this man in the middle, his legs were not broken. He is the one. Why is John telling us this? He tells us why. So that we will believe. So that we will believe. John's purpose here is evangelistic. He wants us to know these truths about the man Jesus Christ so that we will believe that He is more than just a man. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Remember what John wrote earlier in this Gospel. He wrote that God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would have everlasting life and not perish. And so... And so faith, faith is what John is after here. He wants us to believe. Number three, our third observation is that Christ's side was pierced with a spear. Now Jesus certainly looked dead. It certainly didn't look like there was any reason to break his legs. But this soldier, wanting to be beyond doubt, I suppose, simply thrust his spear into the side of Christ all the way up to his heart. So that now there can be no doubt. Oh, he's dead. He is surely dead. Now, that is a very important point, by the way. Because the Romans had their ways of making sure that their criminals, when sentenced to the death penalty, truly died. Jesus was truly dead. This spear going into his heart proves he was truly dead. You say, Justin, why emphasize that? Because one of the leading theories among those who have tried to deny the resurrection of Jesus over the last 200 years has been this one. Jesus didn't really die. Now, recently this view has begun to fall out of favor with with modern skeptics of the Bible, but, but the view for many for the last 200 years, this view has had its advocates, is that Jesus appeared dead But he wasn't dead. This view is called the swoon hypothesis. It argues that Jesus simply fell into unconsciousness on the cross. He looked dead, but he wasn't dead. And they argue that when his body was then turned over to Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph laid Jesus' body in the tomb, all Jesus needed was time to recover, and soon Jesus awoke in the tomb. And he hadn't died at all. He just needed rest. And then he was somehow able to get out of the tomb. And and his disciples thought, oh, he's arisen. And that's how this myth called Christianity began. That's the view. Now, there have been different variations of it. One popular version was espoused by a man named Karl Barth. Not the Karl Barth that some of you will know as a German theologian. This is an earlier Karl Barth. And he argued that Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke, 
gave Jesus some medicines that would make him appear dead when he wasn't. And that this whole thing was a scheme of deception by Jesus. Jesus wanted to look dead so that he could fool his own 12 disciples, 11 disciples at this point, into thinking that he had risen. Another view, 1800s, when this one was put forward by a man named Carl Venturini, he claimed that Jesus had a secret society of supporters, that they were all dressed in white, and that they were grieving outside of his tomb. They thought he was dead. And all of a sudden, while they were grieving outside of his tomb, they heard groaning inside. And so they scared the guards away, and then they came back and they rolled the stone, and it turned out Jesus was never, had never died at all. And they set him free from the tomb. But that his disciples never knew this, and they called it a resurrection. So these are the kinds of theories that people come up with to to explain away the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet the Word of God cannot be any clearer. I mean, you, you can submit to it or you can deny it. You can believe it or not believe it. You can put yourself in judgment over the Bible and say, I don't believe that book. Or you can be humble and put yourself under the Bible and say, Bible, teach me. But there's no ambiguity here. The Bible teaches that Jesus really died. And that when Jesus got up from the tomb, he got up from the dead. He resurrected. Jesus was truly dead. He was not mostly dead. You ever seen The Princess Bride? Right, in that movie? You you can be mostly dead, but not... No, no, no. Jesus was dead. His spirit had separated from his body. Verse 30 is clear. Jesus was dead. And of course, he did not stay dead. He rose, and he rose not the way Lazarus did, where he would have to die again. Jesus rose as a conqueror of death. Jesus now stands as judge over all the living and the dead. That's what people don't want to face. People come up with the most outrageous, unbelievable theories because they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the living, resurrected Lord before whom one day we must all give an account. Church, we do not make Jesus Christ Lord. He is Lord. God has made Him that. And one day every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. He is the ruler over all. This is proven by His resurrection. And therefore, it's important to notice he was truly dead. And the spear going all the way up into his heart proves that. We should also point out that the piercing of Jesus with the spear was not a surgical procedure. This was not a careful, meticulous inching of the spear as as, uh, 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 kindly as possible through the body of Christ. No, this was simply a sword thrust in. How do we know? Because it left a gaping hole. How do we know that the spear left a gaping hole? Because in the next chapter, Jesus will come to Thomas, and he doesn't say, Thomas, put your finger in my side. He says, Thomas, put your whole hand in my side. The idea is that this spear left quite a wound. Number four, let us observe that John was a witness to this piercing. The disciple John was a witness to this piercing. Now, John doesn't make that explicit in this verse. He, he speaks of one who witnessed to the, this, this experience. And he speaks in the third person. He talks about this witness who saw these things, this witness who tells the truth. 
And yet there can be little doubt if you read the whole gospel. This is John referring to himself. We know from other passages that the Apostle John was there. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, meaning that John and Jesus had a very close friendship. It is very possible that John was Jesus' closest friend, human friend, during Jesus' lifetime. John had left everything to follow Christ. John was there when Christ transfigured himself on the mountaintop. John was one of the three who had gotten a glimpse of the true divine glory of Jesus that was, that was hidden most of the time within his humanity. And now all the other disciples, they fled. Peter's nowhere around. James is nowhere around. The others are nowhere around. Judas is dead. But here's John, and he's at the cross. And he's watching the agony of Christ as he dies. He hears those final words. He watches Jesus' head bow and his, his corpse upon the cross. Remember, right before Jesus died, he looked down on Mary and John, and he said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. It was John that he entrusted the care of his mother to. And now as John watches, the spear cuts through the dead body of his Lord. And what does John see? And this is our fifth observation and our last one for this morning. Blood and water flowed from the side of Christ. Blood and water flowed. Now, blood we can understand, right? I mean, if you put a spear in somebody, blood's, blood is going to come out. So blood we can understand. Water how do we explain water flowing from the side of Christ? Well, there is a medical explanation. It's been known for a couple of centuries now. It's the theory that what Jesus was experiencing, and it seems very likely, by the way, is that Jesus' body went into a state of hypovolemic shock that due to the severe torture that he experienced, he fell into this state of hypovolemic shock. This, this happens when a person loses a lot of blood and the heart begins to beat rapidly. This person will often begin to feel faint, dizzy, nauseated, weak, unable to stand. And this seems to fit with what we see as Jesus is marching through the streets of Jerusalem and He's already been beaten so severely and lost so much blood that He can barely walk. The doctors also tell us that a, a sign of hypovolemic shock is that the person will be very thirsty. And one of the very last things that Jesus said was, I thirst. And if this is accurate, doctors tell us that one aspect of hypovolemic shock is that as the heart begins to beat rapidly, fluid also begins to gather around the lungs and around the sac encasing the heart. And when water gathers around the lungs, it's called pleural effusion. When it gathers around the heart, it's called pericardial effusion. And the Bible doesn't tell us which side of the body the spear went through. If the spear went through the left... Then it went through the heart and it pierced that uh, pericardial effusion, that, that sack around the heart, and the water would have flowed. If the spear was put in through the right, the way uh, Roman Catholics have taught for centuries, the way it's been handed down in tradition, then the spear would have pierced both the lung and the heart, and the water would have flowed 
from both. And so it appears that that is the medical explanation. But there's more to that, of course. Why did God ordain for this to happen? Why does John make special note of this? I mean, think about this. John says, blood and water flowed, and then he stops and he says, there was a witness to this, and this witness is true. We know that he's telling the truth, and he's writing these things so that you will believe. So he's emphasizing this. There is something important in the mind of John that blood and water flow, that this spear went into the side of Christ. And so tonight, we will look at our second heading What are the reasons that God ordained for blood and water to flow from Christ's side? But as we close, let me mention just one. It's the obvious one, because John explicitly says it. He says that one reason this happened, the piercing of Jesus, was to fulfill the Old Testament Scripture. He points us to Zechariah, and he quotes a portion of it. Listen to Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10. God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so God had promised way back in the book of Zechariah that He would pour out a spirit of grace. Who's He going to pour it on? He's going to pour it on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We know from the New Testament this is ultimately a reference to every person who will ever believe, Jew or Gentile, the church. It certainly also applies especially to those Jews in the first century who were a part of the crowd yelling, Crucify Him! And then weeks later would be convicted of their sin at Pentecost and become a follower of the Lord Jesus. They would hear the preaching of Peter and they would believe. Church, listen carefully to this. This was written hundreds of years before the cross. God said that when He pours out His Spirit and grace on these people, it's going to have power. When God sends the Spirit into people's lives, things happen. And in this case, God says, when I pour My Spirit out, here is what is going to happen. These people are going to look upon Me. And then He describes Me, God, in these words. When they look on Me, on Him whom they have Pierced. One of John's great burdens in this gospel is to say, Jesus is God. And that this is God that has been pierced. This is the sacrificial love of God in humbling Himself to bear His own condemnation for the sake of those He would save. God says when these people realize who it is that they have killed, they will weep profusely. They will weep bitterly. They will weep with a heaviness of heart the way you weep over the death of your firstborn child. And John quotes this passage from Zechariah. He quotes it right here after the spear. And he says, see? Do you see what this soldier has done? He has pierced him. Here was that sign we were looking for. 
This soldier didn't know what he was doing. He was just doing his job. But there was another mighty hand at work. Jesus is the Messiah. And those to whom God chooses to send the Spirit will see this. And they will grieve at what our sins have done to the Son of God. By the way, John quotes one verse in Zechariah. He certainly knew the rest of the passage. Just a few verses down is this in Zechariah. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So one verse, He will be Him whom they have pierced. A few verses down, On that day a fountain will be opened that will cleanse from all sin. And so John sees the spear. He's pierced! And John sees the blood and water. And it's flowing like a fountain. And it's so clear. It's so clear to him. Here it is. This is the one we've been waiting for. And he writes this in his gospel and he says, won't you believe? I'm telling the truth. I'm bearing witness. I'm telling you. Won't you believe? The blood represents the power of Jesus to forgive your sins through the shedding of blood. It is justification. It is the cleansing of your guilt before God when you believe on His name. The water represents the power of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying you and cleansing you of all your unfiltiness, your desires and heart. The blood represents the cleansing you from your guilt of sin. The water represents the cleansing you from the power and the presence of sin. This is Jesus as a Savior. This is what Thomas Cooper was thinking of when he wrote that hymn we love to sing. One of the lines says, His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Close with a story. I don't ever do that. I'm going to close with a story. Can I do that this morning? been reading this week in Martin Lloyd-Jones, a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's been such a good book. It has been a fantastic book. But I was thinking about this subject of the blood of Jesus is able to avail even for me, even for the worst, even for the vilest of sinners. Here's the story. It says there was a man in the town of Aberavon where Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching. He was real young at this point. He's preaching at this little small church in town. And um, and there was a man uh, in the town who was the town drunkard. Everyone knew, knew him as the town drunk, made a total mess of his life. And every night he would go to the, the pub and he would just drown his sorrows in his drink. And one night, uh, his name was Staffordshire Bill. Uh, that's how they knew him. That was his nickname, Staffordshire Bill. And Staffordshire Bill was, was, was drinking away his sorrows there at the pub. And, and in the back of the room, there were two men talking and they had just come from a church service where Lloyd-Jones had been preaching at the little church. The man didn't hear much, but he heard the name Lloyd-Jones, he heard the name of the church, and he heard this sentence. I was there last Sunday night, and that preacher said nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. And something happened in that moment where the Spirit of God got a hold of Staffordshire Bill, and he said... I don't know if I can believe that is true or not, but I'm going to that church and I'm going to find out if there can be hope for even me. And so he resolved to go to that church. And so the next Sunday night, that's when they did their evangelistic services. I don't know if he knew that or not, but, but that Sunday night he, he, he went and he was going to show up and he, he walked up to the churchyard and, 
Of course, everybody in town knew him, and he was so ashamed to walk in, he chickened out, and he didn't go. And he felt guilty the rest of the week, and he said, I should have gone. I want to know, is there hope for me? So he resolved, no, next week I'm going to do it. Next week I'm going to do it. And he gets there the next Sunday night, and he hears the congregation singing from inside, and he says, oh, I'm late. I'm not going in. And he turned away again. The next Sunday, he goes there Sunday night, and and he's, he's there, and he's pacing, and he's trying to decide, am I going to go in, am I going to go in, am I going to go in? And one of the church members peeks out the door and says, Bill, are you coming in or not? <laughs> Come sit with us. And he comes in, and he, and he sits with them, and he hears the gospel, and he comes back the next week, and he hears the gospel again, and the Lord Jesus Christ saved even Staffordshire Bill. And it was a testimony to the whole community. There is hope for everybody. And so I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know the, the, the guilt that you feel. But dear church, what we're about to celebrate is that the blood of Jesus Christ, that fountain that was brought forth, symbolized by the blood flowing from His body with the spear, it represents that blood that will cleanse us from all our sins and make us right with God. Aren't we thankful for it? Let's pray.